Welcome to the Like, Bite, and Share podcast, brought to you by Schweid & Sons. Learn the secrets of food and hospitality marketing from some of the best professionals in the food business. Here are your co-hosts, Rev Ciancio from Schweid & Sons and Brad Garoon from BurgerWeekly.com. What up, man? <laughs> Hi, Brad. What's going on? Uh, not much, man. Um, just recovering from a big weekend and a hot weekend, and I'm happy to be sitting here in my air-conditioned office. While we record this thing, how was your weekend? What was your, what was your big weekend? Oh, it was big, man. I actually my big weekend falls into some burger related activity, so it's good that I'm sharing it with you. Uh, I went to on Friday at about six o'clock, right after I got out of work. I went to this new spot in Williamsburg called the Freehold. Have you heard of it? No, I have not. Well, now you have. Uh, it is uh, it's a big outdoor space and a sizable indoor space. They they sort of made it up to look like a hotel lounge inside and and uh, really like a hotel pool deck on the outside with ping pong and cornhole. And uh, I had heard that they have a pretty solid burger, so I was sitting at the bar drinking my shandy. Nice and uh, yeah, it was good. And then and then the burger came ten bucks, quite good ground shuck, um, really soft, delicious brioche bun. Uh, and between the great beer selection and the delightful and relatively cheap burger, I was I was hooked, and I stayed there for six hours. Eating uh, burgers the whole time? or No, just drinking beer? beer the whole time. Uh, eating burgers only in the beginning. I probably should have had more. Their fries are also pretty damn good. You're, I feel like lately you've been on like a, uh, a fry thing. I'm on such a French fry kick. I'm really trying to get people to admit that fries are crack. Uh, <laughs> Food the, crack? <laughs> the fries equal crack hashtag. But uh, yeah, I, I, I just... I was at Lupolo and I was eating some some uh, Portuguese chicken there, and I started chowing on their French fries, and I couldn't stop, even though I was full. And like the things like fries are crack. I can't stop. I have a serious problem. We'll have to do. We'll have to get Matt Chernis from Grill 'Em All onto the podcast at some point. I, I was with him, and everybody knows they're like the heavy metal hamburger guys, mm-hmm. and they, they received all this notoriety from television and burgers and blah, blah blah. And one day I'd had a couple of beers with Matt and I was like, dude, where does it all, where does it all come from? And he was like, I love French fries. Like, <laughs> I love French fries. French fries are God. French fries are the best thing I've ever eaten. He's like, I, I like French fries more than hamburgers. Hamburgers are conduit to eating French fries. And he'd like, like a 30 minute missive on how amazing French fries are. So we'll, we'll, we'll have to get him on the podcast at some point. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I want to hear that. I actually, I don't feel that way, but I just, I just can't stop right now. I actually do sometimes plan my dinners around whether or not French fries will come with the meal, uh, regardless of the cuisine. Really? Yeah. What about you, man? Anything good this weekend? Any good food lately? Well, I could talk about fries or I could talk about hamburgers. Which one do you want? <laughs> Either, both. I got time. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll go both. So I had some French fries over the weekend that were phenomenal. Uh, there's a place in Jersey City called the Left Bank Burger Bar, mm-hmm. uh, and it, they're kind of like the premier burger spot in in Jersey City. There's not really like that definitive best burger, but they uh, they are definitely making a really good run at it. They have something called Chilltown Fries, and it uh, it has quote unquote butcher's chili, cheese, smoked bacon, and jalapeno. And I wouldn't define them as crack, but there is definitely some level of addictive that. A, like you can't, it, you definitely can't have one. I'm looking at the photo right now. They remind me a lot of the tater tots at, damn it, I can't remember the name of the place. This West Village cocktail bar. All right, oops, can't remember. Can you? I would love it if you went back and hashtag fries equal crack on that photo. Uh, I, I will do that for you. And then we'll talk about a burger real quick. I had a burger last week, and I eat them maybe as much as you do. And I don't ever use the word game changer unless I truly believe like this is something that is going a different 
is going a different a road. I had a burger last week that I couldn't believe I was eating it when I ate it. And when I was done, I was emailing the chef for two days about it. Wow. Right? And clearly, I eat a lot of hamburgers. The Ainsworth in New York City is about oh, to roll yeah. out a new burger menu. And uh, Chef Steven Yen, uh, I happened to be stopping by. I was like, oh, you got to try these. And one, they made this burger. It's just called the Bacon Burger, which is like so underwhelming of a name for what, is, what happens. But it has bacon jam, right? And then it's got honey hoisin glazed bacon. And then it's got a fried cheese, but it's not fried cheese like hard. It's soft. It's like a fried cheese sauce with panko in it. I, I can't put into words how much I enjoyed this burger oh, and what the, the – like because it was salty. It was sweet. It was savory. It was big. It was large. The texture – like it had all those moments that you want in a burger that you're like, I'm going to eat this burger. I've not posted a picture of it yet. It'll go up on Schweid and Son's Instagram soon, but – Man, like I can't stop thinking about it. Was that the burger you sent me a picture of in text? Yes, that is okay. that burger. All right, I want to eat that. God bless. Well, listen, we, we could probably talk burgers all day. Let's uh, let, let's get into interview today and actually help some people. I want to welcome Rachna Govani to the uh, Like Bite and Share podcast this week. She has uh, some interesting stories about becoming a uh, a food marketing entrepreneur uh, with a background in tech and a background in food and also a background in dance. But we'll, uh, we'll let her talk about that. Rachna, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. I'm excited to be here. Uh, it's nice to have you. Mm-hmm. So, so tell everybody here, what, what is Food Stand? So Food Stand is a social enterprise, first and foremost. And our mission is to make good food the easier choice for everyone. We know eating well is not the easiest thing in the world. So we're here to chip away at some of the barriers. And our solution is an app that crowdsources where to find good food and what to do with it. Um, and the fun part of it is that we've built it in a, in a photo-based community platform. So if you ever have any desire to salivate over food porn, we are your home, and we also make you a better eater by experiencing it. <laughs> I think Brad, Brad and I are accustomed to much, much food porn. So mm-hmm. yes, yes, we put food porn to good use. <laughs> <laughs> so when you say good food, what does that mean to you? Yeah, so good. That's that's a great question, and it's actually a pretty loaded question. Um, when I think about good food, we think about it really as food that isn't part of the over-industrialized food complex. So if it's something that is uh, a whole food, if it's something that isn't a Dorito, that isn't Domino's, basically anything that uh, represents what a better food system looks like, where we know what it is, we know where it comes from, and it's probably like not terrible for us, that's how we think about good food. But one thing that we are pretty clear about is that good means different things to different people. So we're all inclusive so long as it's not kind of ruining your health and ruining the planet. So then how does the app administer or uh, just make sure that things don't go off the rails and become a Dorito and Domino's featuring thing? Well, so that's a great question. Um, One of the the lessons we've taken from a lot of other non-food communities that have launched is they were very intentional about who they brought on first. So you think about something like Quora. Um, So Quora started in the tech community, and it's basically a question and answer platform. But because they started in the tech community with the best tech people, it became the resource for better tech information. So they set the stage and they set the norms by the first people that they brought on. So that's been our strategy. We've kept it as a closed beta and really invited people who we think of as sort of representative of better food values up front, um, and they set the stage and they set the norm. So the example is we've had people who posted 
Oreos and Twizzlers and Dominoes, and they don't get as much love and they don't get as much sort of affirmation and validation. So that person who posted that, you know, they don't get dinged. Nobody slaps their wrist, but they also don't get all the, the warm and fuzzy that they would get if they posted something else. So in a lot of ways, the community self-moderates. We don't need to put in any sort of um, uh, hard and fast rule to prevent somebody from posting the dominoes. So people can post, uh, let's call it junk food, if they want. Yes, the app will not explode if you post dominoes. <laughs> challenge, is... challenge accepted. Exactly. Okay. So. <laughs> Rev and I are both from Michigan, where dominoes came from. So. Ah, interesting. <laughs> where in Michigan are you guys from? Just outside of Detroit. Ah, we will, we will talk about Detroit later. So how do you, I mean, you said the community kind of self-moderates and self-corrects itself. Mm -hmm. How do you instill that into the community? So there's two ways we do that. Um, one way is just how we built the product. Um, so one of the main things that you do on Food Stand is you'll share when you find something good um, at a restaurant or at a market. And the way you share it is with a photo. So one, one of the steps is sort of just taking a look at what the food is, which is in some cases daunting or a little bit scary if it's like a Cheez-It. Um, and then the second thing that you do to share is report what's in the food. So tagging the ingredients is the experience. It's a little bit like tagging friends on Facebook. But inherently, if you try to post Cheez-Its and you flip over the package and you try to tag all the ingredients that are listed on the package, it gets really weird pretty quickly. So you, you sort of, the, the product is built in such a way that it, it um, disincentivizes people from posting things that are highly processed. But if you post something that is um, prepared at home or prepared at a restaurant where it's simple ingredients, it's much easier. So the product does some of the, the moderation for us. Um, and then the second thing that we do is all of our content that we put out, um, that when we're showcasing um, different people from the community and we're celebrating certain things, it's really, we're celebrating the things that we value as part of a better food system and then we editorialize around it. I think one of the lessons for us as a very, very small startup, because we are a team of two, is we can't produce a lot of the content ourselves, but we can curate. Um, and I think that's one of the, the biggest lessons for us is how do we make a lot from from the few resources that we have and, and crowdsourcing and really leveraging the community that we've built has been a big part of that. So I, I think that's a good topic since, since you are a small a small company and you are putting what what seems like a lot of content out there. How, how do you uh, curate content from other people? So part of it is our system does a lot of that work for us. So we've built all the internal tools to surface up the best stuff in different categories. So, like, what are the best pies, and where does breakfast in New York um, get the most love? Those are those are kind of rules we wrote into the platform itself. So, when we think about editorializing, it's it's very very simple for us once we have all that basic work done for us. Um, my tech co-founder comes from uh, a community tech background, so this is sort of his bread and butter, no pun intended. Um, and and so that helped us set some of that foundation to editorialize very quickly. Um, and I think the other piece is that we, you know, we have a lot of food passionate people that are producing content on the platform already. So letting them really own the voice is not only is it beneficial for us because it reduces our workload, but in fact it makes the community and our content much more valuable because it's not just us kind of speaking at you. We're letting the community do the, the talking, and that's actually why they like hanging out on food stand. So I find in a lot of uh, community-based platforms like a Yelp or a Foursquare mm -hmm. that a lot of people that want to post that do it because they want some form of recognition, whether it's their friends seeing it or you know, being popular at the check-in or see something. Do you, do you see that in your app, and if so, are you trying to reward those type of people? 
Yeah, we definitely are seeing something similar where people, it's not just altruism that's driving their desire to contribute because that's like why do people join charity boards like it's not always out of the goodness of their hearts um, and some of that is happening on our platform too but the benefit is that a lot of these people who are posting because they want to be recognized for their good food choices they don't have a place to get that anywhere else so in some ways we're filling a pretty um, a pretty important gap and then it also creates all this other content um, for us um, in terms of rewarding them, we're doing a couple of fun things. So one is we basically have a simple leaderboard. Um, so when you're when you're poking around food sin, you'll start seeing crowns on top of people's faces or on top of their their profile photos, um, and that indicates who's on our people to watch list. Uh, we've built a pretty sophisticated algorithm that surfaces some of the newest and best posters at any given time, and so that list is constantly changing, um, and people are coming back to see if they're on that people to watch list. We also do a leaderboard email that pulls out our favorite posts of the week. Uh, and then we're, we also use our social media channels to highlight some of the, the folks who are producing the best content, um, not only from a like visual perspective and are they getting a lot of likes, but the content that really represents the tone and the voice that we believe in and the story we want to tell. So it's really um, part of it is automated and the other part of it is, is curated, but within reason. It doesn't take a lot of work for us to do it. So it sounds to me like not only is there some some uh, a slight bit of gamification in there, but but uh, you know the the two founders of the company are really deeply inside of of what's happening. Is that would you say that's the case? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we're both we built this partly for ourselves. We needed this platform, so it's um, it would be silly if we weren't embedded in the platform itself on a day to day basis. Um, and I think the other piece that's important just to note about our backgrounds, and this is not a plug for myself, it's more just to sort of articulate why we do the things that we do. Um, so Udi, who's my co-founder, spent a lot of time building communities and has a lot of experience um, inspiring and motivating people to contribute when they may not want to. Um, so a lot of that has gone into how we built the product. Um, and my background is also uh, in in sort of sustainability behavior change. So, like, how do you get somebody to recycle when they don't want to recycle? Um, which is a pretty hard problem to solve. But we found that certain things like showcasing and pulling out the, the people on a leaderboard and, and making sure people know that their friends are doing a little bit more than them was a really big driver of getting somebody else to change their behavior. So, for us, that concept of highlighting the best users um, in several different ways and making sure we're a part of that process has been instrumental in how we get people to come on board, how we get them to stick around, how we get them to tell their friends, and most importantly, how we help them make better food choices every day. So it sounds to me like you basically, you came up with a concept and you've built a platform for the people who appreciate it the most to be heard the most. Yep, yep. I think that I should steal that from you. I write Twitter bios for a living. No, I'm kidding. Uh, well, that, I think that's a good segue. Let, let's go. Let's go back and let's talk about how this started and some of your background. You know, mm -hmm. for other people out there, might be thinking, "Oh, I want to get into starting starting some kind of new company, or I want to yeah. develop an app." Where did the Where did the idea come from? And then, what was your sort of your first step before you decided you were going to do it? Yeah. Um, so the idea came from a lot of conversations and also our own pain points. Um, and this is where most ideas come from. I would say. Um, we didn't, this wasn't one of those simple things where we said, um, ooh, I have this pain, I'm going to build a solution, and then it turns into this like massive business. I think it was definitely more intentional than, than products that launched that way. But when I say we started with a lot of conversations, you know, we had this desire to 
make good food an easier choice for people because it, my my personal and my family background was actually in the food industry. Um, so in the 80s and 90s, my parents owned food businesses. They had an ice cream shop and they had a couple of corner stores um, in the great state of New Jersey. And what we realized as business owners, um, and I was part of that business as their only child, uh, was that it was pretty impossible to make any money as business owners selling good food because the margins just weren't there. So we had to sell Doritos and Snickers bars to put fruits and vegetables on our table, and that was fundamentally problematic for my family as like business owners. But then it also highlighted this bigger problem that finding good food in your own community is, is not easy at all, and for the most part, at least in the 80s and 90s, it wasn't affordable. And so when we think about the problem that we're really trying to solve now today with food stand, it's, it's recognizing that in the market today, there are good food options around. There are amazing people who are providing better food for you at an affordable price around the corner from you, and you probably just don't know they're there. And so when we started interviewing people to understand why it's hard to spend your money on good food all the time, a big part of it was like, I don't know where it is, I don't know what to do with it, and it seems really painful and inconvenient. So understanding that problem was was really critical before we built anything. So we started, so we did the interviews, we said, okay, this is the thing we want to focus on, and then we came up with about 20 or so different solutions. And, and I'm not exaggerating at all, I'm being very serious. When I say 20, uh, and I think every good entrepreneur should, should know that like there are probably 19 bad ideas before you get to a good one. Um, so we started there. We had a bunch of prototypes, uh, and what I mean by prototype, at least for an app, start with paper. Um, Start with a napkin if you have to. Do not build anything. Um, start with paper and get people's reactions uh, to the thing you want to build um, or the thing or the solution that you think you want to present to the world. Um, we did a lot of that early on before we built one piece of technology or wrote one line of code uh, to really understand how people make decisions today um, and what we can do to help them. I think one of the biggest learnings from paper prototyping was that nobody wants to be told what to do. Uh, when it comes to good food choices, right? Like if I told you, Rev, like you should not eat Domino's ever again, and then you ate Domino's, and you're going to feel really judged. Like that's going to suck for you, and then you're never going to come back. So we don't want to be in that situation. Um, it, is, I, it is true, and sadly, I do really like their butter garlic dip, but that's another conversation. <laughs> right, I, I'm not judging you at all. Um, so we knew that we had to take a, a crowdsourced approach that was much more social in nature. Um, and that really helped us build the smallest version of food stand, which even before it hit the app store, it was basically like post food photos and tag what's in it to see if that was compelling. And that really helped us know that consumers like to do that one thing. It was really great for recording what you were eating and recognizing what was in the food. And it was also really great to see what your friends were eating because it gave you a different way of getting to know them and be part of their lives. And then therefore it also inspired you to model their own behavior. So we started on paper and on napkins. We went to consumers with that and then we started building something and we let our consumers guide um, guide what we actually build on a day-to-day -day basis. Because I think if, you know, if people aren't going to use it, there's no point in building it. So do you and or Udi have a tech slash app creating background? Yes. So uh, I, I do everything but the building. I wish I did. I like tried once and it was a miserable failure. <laughs> um, Udi's been uh, building technology. He's a developer. He's been an engineer for 15 years. Um, he was one of the first engineers at Yahoo Answers, which was probably one of the most successful early 
online communities out there. Still out there. Yeah, it's still out there, still rocking and rolling. Um, and so he is the he's the app builder. Um, and I think my one piece of advice to anybody who's listening, who's thinking about launching an app, because there is an app for everything, um, you have to have a tech co-founder. I don't care how many tech shops sell you on this idea that they'll do it for you. Um, it's I just wouldn't I wouldn't do it. They'll screw you over and they'll give you a product that doesn't work longer than a week. And having a tech co-founder really helps um, produce a better product. And also, frankly, like I shouldn't be making those decisions, right? Like I don't know that stuff. So it's really important to have somebody on the team who is accountable for tech solutions. If your company is a tech company, I always like to say, be awesome at two things and outsource everything else. Yep, yep. I think that's a really good piece of advice. <laughs> So you, the, the company is, and if, correct me if, I, if I'm wrong here, but it's a division of purpose? So it is, nope, now as of a week ago, we are our own company. Uh, so we were a division of purpose because it was incubated within um, purpose. And for those of you who don't know what purpose is, it's a mission-driven um, digital agency and consultancy. Uh, and they also have an incubation arm. Uh, and basically what they do is they, they help Good food business or good businesses and organizations and nonprofits um, basically change the world through the power of participation. Um, and they take that theory and they also apply it to other um, to other issues and launch their own ventures. And so Food Stand was uh, their food incubation, and we are now a standalone company, but obviously still have a very very close and strong ties to the Purpose family. Well, congratulations. That's very, very exciting. Thank you. Thank you. We're adults we'll, now. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll call it the uh, very first you heard it here first moment for the podcast. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so when you when you were putting the idea of the company together, did you know about Purpose or did that come later in the story? So we, yes. So we were, I was at, I was at Purpose doing the interviews and the research. Um, the, the interesting thing about how we became a company, and I think this is, important for a lot of food businesses out there is that there's grant money um, if you're working on something that's helping a better food system uh, become the norm. So we got a grant to do some early research at purpose um, on what a food movement could look like and that's where I got to come in and really do some of these customer interviews and develop the idea of food stand. Um, so it was in the wall, within the walls of purpose and with their support that we came up with this idea we prototyped it, we built it, and we were able to raise outside capital, which is how we were able to spin out. Um, so it's not a traditional way of starting a business, but I think the lesson learned there is if you're, if you're doing something that's helping the food system, you can probably get money out there that isn't traditional venture capital money, and it's money that you don't need to pay back. And how, how would you suggest somebody at least start the research on, on something like that? So start with the USDA. Um, there's the USDA. I think a few months ago just released something like 60 million dollars in grants that were part of local food marketing promotions. So if you're doing anything that's supporting the local food economy, there's a grant out there for you. Um, and I'll make sure you guys have the links for all that sort of stuff. But there's plenty of money from the government directly. But then once you get there, you'll start seeing some of the other big foundations that are also offering grants that are supporting the local um, a local food economy across the country. Was being a part of Purpose helpful in rolling out your social media presence? Because you guys have been around, you've been active on Instagram for less than a year. You've already got over 8,000 followers. And you post regularly, but not incredibly frequently. It's a really good result for the amount of time that you've been there. Yeah, I think being part of the Purpose family is super helpful. One, because they, they have a, a large following themselves. 
and they're retweeting our things and all of that stuff. So it's it's you get the ancillary benefit of just association. Um, and I think the other thing that's quite important is you know, as you said, do two things well and outsource everything else. Um, I would say that we've learned a lot just by by osmosis of being in the office with these guys on on a smart social media strategy, um, primarily one that's driven by uh, promoting the narratives and the stories that you that you want the world to adopt, um, and that's really been at least our strategy on Instagram is to take, you know, we, we have a channel, we have, there are amazing stories out there that are not getting enough love and they're not getting enough exposure, let's translate them and make them palatable for the mainstream audience, um, and that's been our approach on Instagram and it's been catching on and, and thankfully people like it and we're going to keep doing it, but I think the purpose, uh, the purpose influence is really that, you know, a strong narrative is super important for a startup, especially as you think about your brand in the world. Food as an industry is getting quite frothy, is the sort of technical term, um, is what I've heard. There's a, basically, it's, it's very crowded, and it's really hard to cut through the clutter, especially on social media, so you need to have a strong brand and a strong voice, um, and that's been our approach, uh, is to really carve that out for ourselves on, on social media. I think what uh, what Brad and I are, are finding the more of these we do and the more people we talk to and the more the more uh, you know, the food marketing pros we come across is that specializing in one thing or sort of understanding one voice or one idea uh, really is a great basis for stuff like that. And it sounds to me like food stand at a very very basic level is like here's one idea we're going to base everything that we do around that. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think we. Um, we definitely were very focused on understanding the mainstream audience and how to talk to them before we put anything out, but we've doubled down on just focusing on them and making sure our message resonates um, with an audience in a way that, again, like doesn't make them feel judged, doesn't put out the same didactic stuff that's been coming from food organizations for many years, um, and really brings in a new audience into the food, the quote-unquote food movement and the food dialogue because we need them, otherwise we're not, like, nothing is going to change in our food system. And so is that is that the ultimate goal of food stand, to change the food system? And also make a lot of money because we are a business. But, yes, mm -hmm. um, I, would say, I would say our main goal is to make sure the better food system wins, and we want to be the, the power behind that. Um, that also happens to be a really big business. So, like, if you think of, if you look at all the entire food industry, um, what we think of as better food, so local, regional, sustainable food, is is the fastest growing of all of food, um, anything that's happening in food right now, and it's also the highest margin business. The challenge is you're still seeing that there's not that much consumer spend going to better food options. So we want to be the power behind people spending their money on better food options. If we are successful at doing that, we should also reap the benefits of some of it. So in the end, our game is really focused on on building a really strong business, but that business happens to be one that's um, helping a better food system win. So per that goal, are there plans to do collaborations with better food brands? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, that's something that we, um, we've we already started to do, even just through our social media presence and some of the events that we run. Um, we run a, a pitch night for good food entrepreneurs. This is more focused on helping some of the newer food businesses hit the market, but the monthly pitch night is focused on making sure any good food brand that um, wants to get to market or is in market has a chance to get exposure in front of hundreds of people in New York, mm -hmm. uh, but also gets a chance to get the advice that they're looking for. So not only can they say, like, hey, check out my cookie, it's so amazing, but 
they get a chance to say, hey, I've priced my cookie at $2.99, is that too much? Um, and also get the advice from the investor community as well. So for us, I think a better food system can only win if better food businesses succeed. So we want to make sure that those are that we're helping those people as often as possible throughout our platform, um, both offline and online. So would you would you say then that it's important when starting a business to have a business model? Oh my goodness, yes. I mean, I like I I also come from an entrepreneurial household, and and I spent a lot of time in corporate America before doing this, and I think I'm a, that's why I have this opinion. I think if you talk to some of the younger um, folks that are starting companies, they're less concerned about business models, but I guess I'm old school, maybe a bit of a grandmother about this. I think you should be doing things that inspire you absolutely, but like you need to have a sense of how that's going to make any money, otherwise you're just sort of burning out calories on launching what is an unfunded nonprofit, basically. So I think we, we can take that and dive a little bit into your past. Uh, I have read that you started your first business at age five, is that true? Uh, yeah, I've been, you know, people played like house as kids, um, I didn't, I played like company and restaurant, <laughs> I don't, I think it was, it's probably in my genes just because of who my parents are, but yeah, I, um, definitely, my first business that I started uh, and the first invention that I made was a sock keeper together, which is the worst name, clearly I was not into branding when I was a kid, um, but basically my mom had, uh, had voluntold me to help her with the laundry, and my job was to pair all the socks that came out of the dryer. And I was so annoyed by this process that I was like, "This is so inefficient. We need to keep the socks together." So I invented this little device that um, kept your socks together when they went in the wash, so they came out. And I won a invention contest. I was like so excited. <laughs> yeah, why don't I have this? I know, right? See, like people need this in the world. I should really um, remake the product and start selling it. <laughs> So wait, is it a commercially available product? Like, can we all buy this now? Oh no, 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 no! This was this was one of those like, I won the elementary school or kindergarten uh, invention contest. I produced a bunch, and then I think it. I'm sure somebody has come up with a better solution than mine. Mine involved a rubber band and some safety pins. If you can imagine what that is, um, I'm sure somebody's come up with a better solution now. I'm googling it. Yep. <laughs> well, I, I certainly don't get entrepreneur uh, points for this, but I do remember in fifth grade I was the only student to throw an egg off the roof of my school that didn't break. <laughs> wow. I feel like you should get a prize for that. <laughs> uh, all I did was wrap it in – I wrapped it in ten socks with a rubber band, and I threw it off, and it didn't break. All right, and so l l let's talk a little bit more uh, uh, about your background. So you went from being a, a young entrepreneur – Mm -hmm. uh, into working for a very, very corporate uh, and big company. Yeah. How did you go from American Express to food stand? So I always knew I was going to start a business, primarily because I didn't know how to play house as a kid. Um, I knew it was always going to happen, and I think my time at Amex was was very much focused on learning a lot of things. Um, when I first started my internship there, like many, many moons ago, I went in with a checklist of, like, these are the, like, 20 things I want to learn, and then I'm out. <laughs> uh, so I got through my checklist, basically, and, um, and, you know, it was a very valuable experience. I think people have a lot of different perspectives on the benefits of working in corporate America. I would say as somebody who's gone through that process, um, I learned a lot about, um, about rigor, right? Like, to run a really strong business, you need to know the ins and outs of your business. That only happens if you are trained by people who do that day in and day out. Um, and I think the second thing that I learned pretty quickly is that, like, if you want to launch a business from scratch, it takes a, a pretty irrational degree of, 
of um, commitment to something really, really big. Um, so I think working in a really big company gives you a, a very obvious sense of scale. Like what does it mean to run a billion dollar company? It's, it's quite hard and there's lots of things that you probably don't realize. Um, so I think for me, being in corporate America was much of, was, was pretty much a learning experience and I got to the point where I was ready to, you know, like leave the nest, um, so to speak. And then I went to, before I started Food Stand, I, I took a, a sort of halfway step down to a smaller company that was um, about 70, 60 or 70 people, also a growth stage startup, but I was able to see how my skills transferred from big corporate to something that was um, small and a little bit rickety and like, and had a lot of growth potential, but needed needed the same rigor that I got from corporate America. So I, I took like a half step down to a small company and then from there I would say um, I learned what it meant to, to work at a startup and to work at one that, you know, had some of the the opportunities and the challenges of growing a really big company. Um, and at that point it was like, all right, I'm ready. I'm ready to do the thing that I've been wanting to do for years and years um, and got a really awesome opportunity and just jumped on it. You know, I think that's that's the other thing about starting companies. You're probably never ready, uh, but if you get an opportunity, you should take it because it's never going to come back. So let's see. If we can wrap this up, it's yeah. just do it. Yeah. <laughs> spend, spend a lot of time thinking about it. Yeah. And focus yourself on, on one primary concept. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would say focus is paramount. I mean, you can do a thousand things. Um, you're going to want to do a thousand things. I think that's probably the hardest thing about being an entrepreneur is you have to fight the, or the urge to do everything. Um, but if you don't focus, you won't get anything done. Great. Well, we're going to give you a bit of a challenge as we say goodbye here. On every episode, we ask our guests a few burger questions, as Rev and I are huge burger guys. Yep. So to begin, what's your favorite burger from childhood? So this is, I'm like a bit of a, a, a loser on this one here. Um, so I didn't eat burgers growing up. We had like chutney sandwiches. So I can't, I will answer the question, is my favorite burger that I had um as a as a teenager, if that's fine. Um, that's childhood, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. So my first burger experience was actually at um, at Udi, my co-founder's, um, at his lake house. Uh, we were making burgers. I had never in my life seen ground beef before, and my friend Dave was like, "You're just gonna get in here and make these burgers with me." So we threw in literally everything in the fridge. It was like your kitchen sink burger. Um, and for the first time, I stuck my hands in ground beef, and it was like kind of therapeutic and kind of amazing. And um, I think I enjoyed making the burger and therefore I enjoyed eating the burger but um, I would say if I hadn't made it I probably would have not been as excited to try it uh, but I think the whole making your own burger thing is it's like uh, you know it's like a little bit of therapy like yoga so that was that that was my first one and I think probably the most memorable so did you not eat burgers as a kid because that was a cultural thing or like what was the I don't I think I just didn't like them or I wasn't like I guess I I was I ate so many other things that I just never encountered a burger, which sounds crazy. Um, but yeah, I just like never, never encountered burgers as a kid. But I definitely, as soon as I started, as soon as I experienced this like, ground beef phenomenon of making my own burger, I was like hooked. Awesome. Well, what what was the last burger you ate? The last burger I ate was um, actually at one of the food stand events that we hosted. Uh, this guy, Luke, Lucas Volger, um, if you don't know him, you should check him out. He makes this amazing veggie burger, um, like cookie dough style. Um, uh, I don't even know what it's called. The cookie dough style dough for veggie burgers. So it comes in a big tub, and he made and he was serving and sampling all these amazing 
veggie burger kind of concoctions that were absolutely delicious. Now, I'm, I eat meat, I eat beef, I eat everything, but a good veggie burger is pretty hard to come by, um, particularly in the city, and this one was like out of a tub in your freezer, which is pretty fantastic. So I would say if you haven't had it, you should definitely find it and make it and try it and enjoy it. So, all right, and the, the last question we like to ask all the guests on the podcast is, what is the one piece of advice you would give to someone in the food marketing business? I would say have a very strong um, idea of why you do things. Um, I think food is so personal, and it requires a, a degree of irrational passion for why you're doing something. And if you don't have that, you probably shouldn't do that. So definitely before you do anything, ask yourself why. And as you're doing stuff, make sure you continue to ask yourself why and, and know that that it's the absolute right thing that you want to be focusing on because it takes that much to do it well. Great. Uh, Roshna, why don't you tell everybody where they can find out more about you and about Foodstand? So you can find out more about Foodstand at thefoodstand.com. Uh, you can download the app from the App Store. We are in private beta, but use the code BURGER to download it and get in. <laughs> uh, and yes, go burgers. Um, and then you can find us on Instagram at thefoodstand. Well, hey, thank you. I think this is really, really uh, insightful information for people. I mean, you have a really diverse, uh, really diverse background, a really interesting story, and it sounds like it's all threaded through the desire to make uh, good food happen. Yeah, it was so great to talk to you guys, and I hope uh, I hope to see you all soon. And go burgers! Thanks everyone for tuning in to another episode of Like, Bite, and Share. We hope you found today's interview insightful. If you didn't get a chance to write down everything, no worries. We take the show notes for you. Go to schweidandsons.com slash podcast to find them. If you enjoy the show, we ask for one favor, and that's please give us a rating in iTunes. That helps us to spread the word to others who might find this valuable like you do. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, please subscribe on your favorite podcast player so you don't miss a future episode featuring helpful tips from other professionals in the food marketing business. Stay hungry.